Well, as far as this passage goes, turn, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Because of the bonus verse last week, we're going to start in verse 2. Um, you got to pay it at some point, right? If you get the bonus verse last week, you got to miss a, you know. Of course, you know, you know that the chapter and verse divisions obviously are not inspired. And in some cases, it almost feels as if whoever was putting the verse divisions in the Bible did so while he's like on a, in a buggy going over a bumpy road and kind of, <laughs> it's like it goes here. No, I meant to go here. Uh, but uh, anyway. Now, to be quite honest, this is a passage that if I weren't committed to teaching verse by verse, I would just skip over and say, let's start in verse 17. Um, but I know you guys won't let me do that, and I've got all this wonderful material here that, <laughs> that I labored over uh, this past week on. But I'll start in verse 2 and read through verse 16. That's the entire passage, but um, as it may surprise no one, we're only going to get through verse 6. Um, so starting in verse 2, Paul writes, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom nor do the churches of God. All right, I don't, I just read it, it's good. We can go on to the next passage. No? All right, fine. You forced my hand. Uh, just a very brief recap. Chapter 10, we finished last week, of course, that brought to close the discussion that Paul was having on things offered to idols, a discussion that began in chapter 8 that he gives a, that he lays out the problem, gives a basic solution to. Chapter 9 kind of gives his own experience in these things and then closes it off in chapter 10. And that issue highlights the greater issue of Christian liberty. So even though he's talking about food offered to idols, what's behind that, the foundational point behind that, is Christian liberty. How do you exercise Christian liberty in the church? How do you do so in a way that glorifies God and also looks out for the needs of others. And that's the overriding principle that we saw last week as well. The principle that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. So if you can do to the glory of God, then do it. 
And we had that nice little flow chart last week, if you were here on the back of the handout, that basically said if you, you know, as far as decisions go in the Christian life, you know, the first thing, is it biblical? Can you find a passage in the Bible that says it's okay or not okay? And if the Bible doesn't allow it, you don't do it. It's just flat out, don't do it. There's no question. There's no debate. If the Bible allows it, you go on to the next step, which is your conscience. Are you, do you have a, a sort of a personal, uh, moral, or ethical qualm against doing something? And if that's the case, you shouldn't do it. It's, it's a sin to violate your conscience. You should you know, uh, heed your warning system. Now, maybe your conscience needs to be instructed further, but that's beyond the point. The point is, if your conscience doesn't allow it, don't do it. If it does, you go on. Now you're in the area of Christian freedom. And then the, what guides your Christian freedom is, does it serve, you know, can you do so and serve the benefits of others? Can you do so and serve the benefits of the gospel or the kingdom? Or can you do so and not, you know, is it, you know, something that would also not harm your own spiritual well-being? And, you know, those are questions you need to decide. But, you know, the, you know you're in that area of Christian liberty, so if you can exercise your liberty in such a way that brings glory to God, then you're free to do so. And now that brings us to chapter 11, which begins another topic. Now, we're not quite sure whether this was something that was in the letter that the Corinthians sent to Paul. It doesn't have that typical uh, beginning like you see in the beginning of chapter 12, where he says, now concerning, or where you saw the beginning of chapter 8, now concerning. That is a clue that indicates that Paul is responding to a letter that was sent to him. So I don't know if this is part of the letter, or maybe this is something that Paul had on his heart to say, or maybe he heard something from someone else about this. But Paul feels the need to address this issue that we see here at the beginning of chapter 11. Now as we begin to look at chapter 11, I think what helps is to understand that this is in the issue, this issue that he deals with here is in the larger context of corporate worship. And I say that because there are certain clues that, that you see in the text that indicate he's referring to the corporate worship setting. You look at verse 2, he says, you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then you look at verse 16, but if anyone is contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And then if you, even if you look um, beyond to the end of chapter 14, where he says, let all things be done decently and in, in, in order. The, he's he's, he's going to start talking now about how the Corinthians conduct themselves in corporate worship. And I think you can look at chapters 11, 12, 13, 14 really as one big unit dealing with corporate worship in which he addresses three separate sub-issues. So the first one here is this issue of head coverings or the, the issue of authority and submission in worship. The, the last half of chapter 11 deals with how they practice the Lord's Supper in worship. And then another big section of three chapters on the exercise of spiritual gifts in the corporate worship setting. So again, I believe this section here, 11 through 14, now you can, it's debatable. I'm not, you know, it doesn't say in, when you're gathered together in the church. I'm just picking up clues and putting these things together here. It seems like he's talking overarching about the idea of how you conduct yourselves in the church setting with three separate subtopics. 
So the first one we're going to, well, the, the intention was that we would deal with the first one this morning. But now it's going to be we're going to deal with the first one over the next two weeks. So be that as it may. But there's a lot of things going on in this passage here. There are some textual issues. There are some interpretive issues. And there are some cultural issues that we have to try to understand to the best of our ability. It's a very difficult passage because of uh, some textual issues, some interpretive issues, and some cultural issues that seem to be particular to the situation in Corinth, but we can still draw principles from in our own practice here. So as I was looking at this passage, I, I had a few questions that I wanted to answer. <laughs> I, mean, I do a read-through, a couple of read-throughs, and it's like, okay, what does that mean? Why, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's this mean? And some of the questions I had here is, what is meant by head coverings? Because that seems to be the, the elephant in the room. What is meant by head coverings, Paul? Please explain that to us, and we'll try to come up to, with some understanding of that. Then the next question I have, are these head coverings something that was cultural to them in the first century, or is it something we should be doing now? Is, is head coverings the rule of practice for the church at all times and all places, or is it sort of specific to a cultural setting that the Corinthians were in here in the first century. In verse 3, when Paul says, uh, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, the head of Christ is God, when he says man and woman, is Paul referring to all men, all women, or is he referring to husbands and wives? Because if you have an English Standard Translation, you might see the head of a wife is her husband. Is that what it says there in verse 3? Okay, we'll look at that. What is the precise meaning of head? That is debated. The, the word head is debated because it could mean your head. It could mean, in a sense, like the head of a river, the, the source of the river. It flows out the headwaters. It can also mean a metaphor for authority. I'm, I'm, I'm a head over you, okay? I'm, I'm the head of this company. It means I'm the boss. I have the authority. So those are some of the issues. Another question, what does Paul mean in verse 10? We're going to wait until next week to look at that. But what does he mean because of the angels? <laughs> you know, it's just one of those because of the angels. What does that mean, Paul? You don't really explain these things. So these are just the textual and interpretive issues with the passage. But I think by far more difficult are, are the things that deal with the cultural issues, which I hope we can come to some clarity on as we look at this. Because here's where the situation in Corinth may be very similar to the situation that we see even now in the 21st century American church setting. In fact, I think it's perfectly reflective of man's fallenness that we see here. This sort of war between the sexes, this sort of battle between gender roles, gender identity, um, you know, submission authority. These have always been issues that have plagued the American church for a while, because we live in a period of history in which traditional roles, gender roles, are mocked and ridiculed. You, you see it even now. It's like, you know, if, if, a, if a woman decides that she doesn't want to go into a career path and wants to stay at home and, and raise children and care for the home and, and, you know, make her sphere of work in the home, women in the world will look at that and say, 
you know, you are, you are giving over yourself to an outdated form of patriarchy. You're giving yourself over to some, you know, you're not, you're not fulfilling yourself. You're not reaching your full potential. You need to go out there. You need to explore. You need to do this and that and the other thing. It's mocked and ridiculed. And not only that, on top of that, you've got, in our, even now, you know, I was listening to some sermons on this just to kind of get an idea of this passage. And they were older sermons, so they're not even dealing with the issues that we're dealing with today. So not only are we seeing this sort of mocking and blurring of traditional gender roles, but we're seeing a blurring of just gender as a whole, right? It's like, it's not, you can't even say this is the man's role, this is the woman's role. You don't even know what a man and a woman are. We're debating that. So we have, uh, we're in a culture, in an in a, in a er, a time, in a place where, where men are women and women are men, and, and we're just sort of like this one big amorphous blob of humanity. What is a man? What is a woman? I don't know. You know, you ask that question. I don't know if anybody follows this, but uh, the Daily Wire put out a documentary called What is a Woman? <laughs> and the, the, the guy who put it together went around and asked a bunch of people, academics and and doctors, and pediatricians, and psychologists. He just asked a question, what is a woman? And no one could give him a straight answer. They prevaricated. They, they, they said, well, what does a woman mean to you? It's like, well, that's what I'm asking you. It's like, well, it means you identify as a woman. And that is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a circular argument. They can't get off the, the merry-go-round. Now, of course, all of this is born, I mean, it, all of this talk about gender roles and gender identity and traditional, uh, all this, that, and the other thing, it's really just born out of a sense of autonomy. Again, we, we always come down to autonomy. And it, you can really look at the battle of everything in the world as a, as a battle between theonomy and autonomy. Now, the word theonomy has some weight and baggage if you're f- familiar with that, but it literally just means the law of God. So it, it's a battle between I'm going to follow God's law or I'm going to follow my own law. That's what autonomy is. Self-law, self-governing. It's I do what God says, it's thus saith the Lord, or it's my will be done, thus saith me, my autonomy. Which that itself is born out of the sin of pride and idolatry. It comes down to pride. Pride is the first sin. That was what Satan fell. When he fell, he was proud. He wanted to ascend to the throne of God. And, and you see this in Isaiah 14, talking kind of tangentially about Isaiah, even though it's talking about like the king of Babylon or king of Tyre, I forget which one. But in that passage, you see the voice says, I will ascend. I will. I will. I will. Five times. I will. That's Satan saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And pride is basically idolatry of the self. You worship yourself. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my own destiny. It's all a product of sin. God has a design and a pattern for human life and for human flourishing, and we reject that and pursue our own selfish paths. I don't want what you have for me, God. I want to pursue my own way. I think I know better than you, even though you're the manufacturer. You're the one who made me. You're the one who, who, who breathed life into me. But no, 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 no. I know better for me. I know better for myself. And the problem with the church in America, at least for the last 40, 50 years or so, it's kind of marinated and stewed in this 
philosophy, this idea of autonomy that, that we see in our culture. It's been stewing in this. It's, it's tried to fight back, but you can kind of see now it's most of the churches in America are seasoned with this thinking, this way of thinking, where now it's you no longer stand up for God's pattern for fear of being canceled. You know, I, I've seen video clips of pastors on Oprah or pastors on The View, and, and they ask them very pointed questions about homosexuality or, or transgenderism. And, the, and these pastors, they, they shy away from the question because they don't want to per, be perceived as bigots, as phobes or ists or whatever. So they don't answer the question. Their fear of being canceled, being seen as sexist, being perceived as archaic, bigoted, out of touch with, with reality, so they don't answer the question. They've been marinating in this sort of soup of, of self-rule, self-autonomy, pride. I'm going to do my own thing. And however that, that reflects in the current culture. There are churches in America where you not only will not hear what I'm going to say this morning, but they will also affirm women pastors, gay members, transgender clergy, all of these things, and in a, in a sense to be welcoming and open and, and, and accepting of people. Now to be sure, right, Jesus hung out with sinners. Right? I mean, if, if, if we required you to come, you know, in order to come through the doors of that church, you had to have your act cleaned up. No one would be here. This church would be empty. I wouldn't even be here. All right, it's not that you have to be free of all sin to enter the church. The church is for sinners. We are recovering sinners, right? The point is, is that while you, know, you could say come as you are, and that's fine as far as it goes, the whole point about coming to Christ is that you don't stay as you are. Right? I mean, it's the idea of these welcoming churches is that, no, God likes you just the way you are. Because that's the way God made you. So you, come on in. You don't have to change. You could just be who you are. But that's not the point. No, no, it's like, no. God says, yeah, come as you are. But guess what? If you stay here, I'm going to change you. I'm going to work through you. My Holy Spirit is going to come in and it's going to sanctify you. You're going to read my word and you're going to be convicted of sin. And you're going to change. That's the point. That's the point. We don't want to be saying, no, you're gay, you can't come in this church. No, we want to say, you're gay, come in this church and hear the gospel and be saved. And be saved out of that destructive lifestyle. Because the Bible teaches something that contradicts their view of reality, so they don't teach these things. So as I go through this, I ask for patience and charity as I sort of unwrap this very difficult, hard passage of Scripture. And at the end, maybe you might think, well, that's your interpretation, but I challenge you to listen to what I have to say uh, and, and see if it bears out from the text. But let's just get going here, because I haven't even hit the passage yet, and it's three minutes to ten. <laughs> so, somewhat quickly... Um, you've got five points there in your outline. Uh, I, these points are not mine. I, I, I stole them verbatim, and I'm, I'm admitting it, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> it's not plagiarism if you give credit to the source, right? So these are not my points. But in verses 2 and 3, you'll see the principle stated here. And he begins this section with a word of praise and commendation. Um, look at verse 2 again where Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the tradition just as I delivered them to you. Now, 
Compare that just briefly with verse 17, which uh, heads off the next section. It says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. So here, Paul is starting with a word of commendation. You're doing something right, and I'm going to tell you what you're doing something right, and I'm going to commend you for it, because in the next section, I'm going to tell you you're not doing something right, and I'm not going to praise you for it. So he begins with a word of praise. And he praises them for remembering him and also keeping the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now you hear that word tradition, and if you're a Protestant, if you're an evangelical, if you're a foreign person, you think tradition, all of a sudden, warning bells go off. You know, it sounds like Roman Catholicism. Tradition, tradition, tradition. Or maybe, you know, you just finished watching Fiddler on the Roof and heard Tevye singing tradition. And, you know, it's, so it's not that, though, okay? The word has, is neutral. Is that a movie you've seen, Fiddler on the Roof? Probably not. It's not in your orbit. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's a good movie. Um, anyway, the word has, is neutral. It has both positive and negative connotations. Now, again, we hear it and we automatically think Roman Catholic Church. They, you know, they, they value tradition and sometimes tradition over Scripture, or at, least, at the very least, tradition alongside of Scripture, right? So they have a two-source theory of, of, of authority, of, of revelation, Scripture and then tradition. Or Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, same thing. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus often uses this word to say, you are following the traditions of men. He, and, he, and he blames the Pharisees. You, you are introducing your own traditions into the law of God, and you are adding to the law of God. So that's the negative sense. But Paul uses it in the pastoral epistles to refer to traditions received from us. In other words, apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition. The apostles laid out the teaching. They, they explained, in a sense, they explicated the gospel, the story of the gospels, the story of Jesus Christ, what his life, death, and resurrection meant in, in, their, in their teaching and their preaching as they built these churches. That is the apostolic tradition, which is now contained in the Holy Scriptures. So this is tradition. This is tr- the tradition of the apostles kept down for us, recorded for us, contra the Roman Catholic Church, which says, no, 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 this is a source of of authority, but we also have unwritten authority, unwritten revelation, the the traditions passed down from one bishop to the next, and so on and so forth. So Paul, when he uses tradition here, he's referring to the teachings, the doctrines I've passed on to you. Now, despite all of Corinth's problems, with the possible exception of maybe their misunderstanding in the re- resurrection, which we'll get to, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 15. None of these problems that you see in Corinth are, are doctrinally related. It's more problems of practice than it is problems of, of teaching. Their, their theology was pretty good. Paul doesn't necessarily hammer them for their theology. He hammers them for their practice. Your, your behavior is, is inconsistent with what you profess to believe. You are dividing. You're, 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 you're dividing among teachers. You're committing all kinds of you know, acts of sexual immorality and so on and so forth. You have quite, you know, you're doing weird things with marriage and divorce and, 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 and your, the way you exercise freedom. So it's more their practice than their, than their, uh, than their doctrine. So he commends them for the fact that they hold on to the traditions that were delivered to them. But then he goes on in verse 3, and he provides a principle that's going to guide 
if you will, the rest of this passage. And he says, but I want you to know. Now, when he says that, this is probably something he hasn't told them before. Because if, it, if he had told them, then he would probably say something like, don't you know? <laughs> or haven't you heard? Or don't you remember? Or do you not know? Here he says, I want you to know. So he's like, okay, look. I, I probably didn't give this to you when I was with you, so I'm going to make this known to you here. Verse 3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So what we see here in that verse are three relationships of authority and submission. Three relationships of authority and submission. Now, when Paul uses that word head, and this is... so this goes to the heart of one of the questions I laid out at the beginning. What does the head mean? The word, it just, it's kephale, it means head. Um, I think it's being used both in this whole passage, both literally as in your, your noggin, to use Spanish, your cabeza, your, you know, the, that, that, that melon on top of your body that swivels around and supposedly has a brain inside of it, your head. But he's also using it not as source, but as authority, as in, as in uh, uh, you know, you are the head of somebody. You are over them in authority. And in verse 3, head is being used in the metaphorical sense as in authority. So in other words, you could read it as this. The authority of every man is Christ. The authority of woman is man. And the authority of Christ is God. So here first Paul says that Christ is the head or authority of every Man. Now the word man there is interesting because typically you, when you see word man or mankind or humanity in the Bible and the New Testament, it's the word anthropos, which is man. You get anthropology from it. But it's a generic word. It's used generically to refer to people, humankind. It can mean man in the, in the gender sense, but more often than not it's referred to as man, generally speaking, as human beings. The word here is aner, which literally is a male human being. A male human being. And that word can also mean a husband. It's, off, it's used in the New Testament to refer to a husband. So Paul here is saying that Christ is the authority over every male, every man. All right? we, I, if I had the time, I would look over some passages here, but... You know, there are passages in the, New, in the New Testament that say that Christ is the head of the church. He is, he is the head and authority of the church. So Christ is the head or authority over every male. Now, second, Paul says that the head or authority of woman is man. Now, again, note the lack of the, the word every. There's no word every in the Greek there that refers to woman. So in other words, Christ is the head of every male, but the male is not necessarily the head of every woman. Okay, so it's not like women in general have to pay obedience and, and, and submit to every male in the world. Okay? Um, and again here, the word for woman is, the word, is like the word for man. It, it denotes the female human being. The word is gune. You get gynecology from it. You can figure that out. So gune, woman, female. It's also used for the word wife, which is why the ESV, which is really the only major English translation, says the head of a wife is her husband. Now, it's not literal. Literally, the phrase is what you see here. 
the head of woman is man. But I think, even though it's not literal, I think the ESV catches the idea of what this passage is trying to say. That the wife, the, hus- the head of the wife is her husband. She, the, the husband has authority over the wife. The wife is to submit to the husband. And the Greek would support this translation, and it makes sense, I believe, in the context of this passage as well. We see in Genesis 3.16, after the fall, right, when God pronounces the curse, he pronounces the curse on the serpent and goes to the woman, and he says to the woman, your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. Now, we're going to look at it next week. The roles of submission and authority do not begin after the fall. They begin in creation. Because Paul will say it here. He says, man was created first, right? And then woman was created out of man. So that right there, by default, you can say man first has a position of authority over the woman who was created from the man. But what Genesis 3.16 does say is that the battle of the sexes is born out of the fall, right? The, the woman now, in her fallen state, wants to usurp the authority of the husband, and the husband, in his fallen state, is going to domineer and, and, and abuse that authority on his wife. We also know Ephesians 5.22, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3.1, wives, submit to your own husbands. So you've got the first authority structure, Christ is ahead of every man, the authority over every man. Here you say, and then in the second one, uh, the authority head of a woman or a wife is her husband. Then finally Paul says the head or authority of Christ is God. Now, that may sound like an odd way of saying that because we don't normally think of God or the Father having authority over the Son. Because we think of God the Father, God the Son as being equal, right? They are equal, co-equal members of the Trinity. Because we just saw it last, uh, two weeks ago in our sermon passage, right? I mean, you know, John, uh, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We are one. And this introduces a very important concept at this point. Namely, authority and submission does not mean one is superior and the other is inferior. The one in authority is not superior to the one in submissive. And the person in a a role of submission is not inferior to the person who is in a role of authority. I'm going to give you a big word here. Okay? (laughs) So strap in. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are ontologically equal. O-N-T-O-L O-G-I-C-A-L-L-Y. Onto, it's like onto, O-N-T-O, and then logically. Okay. Ontologically equal. That means they are equal in being. They are equal in essence. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share in the same divine essence. They are ontologically equal. But there is a functional or economic uh, hierarchy, if you will, within the Trinity, a, 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 a hierarchy of, of authority and submission, which is functional. Not, it's not essential to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is functional to them. The Son is in submission to the Father. Right? The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son did not send the Father into the world. Jesus says in, the John, in John's Gospel, I came to do the will of Him who sent me. 
And he will say in John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. But wait, the Father, you and the Father are one. But the Father is greater than I. Well, because we are one in essence, but the Son, as the Son, as the internal incarnate Son, I submit to the will of the Father. He sent me into the world to obtain redemption for the people. And I obey. He, his, the entire life of Jesus is a model of obedience to the Father. So there is a functional hierarchy there. And these are one of some of the things that distinguish the, the Father and the Son. Even though they're equal in essence, we say that the Son is begotten, right? Uh, you know, John 3.16, the only begotten of the Father. And there's a doctrine that talks about the eternal begottenness. You know, the Son is eternally generated from the Father. It's not the Father that is eternally generated. It is the Father that eternally begets, eternally generates the Son. So there is a role, there are roles of submission and authority even in the Godhead. So if you want to sit here and object to the fact that a wife or woman is to be subject to a man or a husband, then you also have to object to the fact that the head of Christ is the Father, and that the head of the man is Christ. They're all a package. This is not a la carte. You can't pick two or three and leave the other one off, okay? You have to take them all. These are, all of the, these are the roles of authority and submission that God has interjected into the creation. The Father is the head of the Son. The Son is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. Now, also what we said about the father and the son also applies to the man and the woman. Just because the husband is head or authority over the wife doesn't make the husband superior to the wife or the wife inferior to the husband. We are both human beings. We are both created in the image of God. We both have the image of God stamped on us. And we'll look more into this, Lord willing, next week. But just consider a couple of ver- a passage from Galatians. Galatians 3, because this is one that people who wish to object to this teaching will refer to and see, aha, see, they'll they'll look at verse 28, but you kind of have to read it in context. See, that's the problem. When, you know, when you take a verse out of context, you can make it mean pretty much anything you want it to mean. You have to read it in context. So starting in verse 26 of Galatians 3, Paul writes, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so right there he's speaking to a collective, a mixed multitude of people in the church, male and female, and he's saying you're all sons. Now he's not calling the women men. (laughs) He's saying son in the sense of being an inheritor. You are the son. You receive an inheritance. You are the firstborn son. You receive an inheritance. So you you are sons as far as it comes to the inheritance. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So now you are in Christ. Men doesn't matter. That's what verse 28 means. So now that you are in Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, you're all sons of God, guess what? There's no distinctions as far as being in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no distinctions at the foot of the cross. The gospel is for everyone. It's not for men. It's not for, for free. It's not for 
Jews only. It's for everyone. Now, this doesn't mean it obliterates the functional roles that are built in society that God has established. It just means that at the foot of the cross, we're all one. There's no, there's no inequality at the cross. We're all heirs. The female's not going to get a less inheritance from God because she's female than the male will. Same with the Jew or the Greek or the slave or the free. We're all one at the foot of the cross. problem is, liberals and feminists look at verse 28 and think it means there are no distinctions at all. We're all one. We're all one big amorphous blob and we all have, you know, we can do everything. There are no roles in society. Nothing. But again, this verse teaches that we are all, again, using that word ontologically, equal, at, you know, all in the image of God, all sons of God, but there are still functional differences in roles. And we'll see this in several weeks as God, as Paul says that the near the end of chapter 14, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Let all things be done decently in order. God has put an order, not just how the church is to function, but God has put an order on how to society is to function. He is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. If you obliterate functional roles and roles of authority and submission, then basically you have a, a situation where you have all chiefs and no Indians, right? You know, how does that... Someone has got to have an authority, Right? For, for society to function, someone has to say, all right, guys, we need to get together and we have to do some things to get some things done. So why don't you do this and you do that and you do that and I'll make sure this gets done. Otherwise, no. And it's like, no, 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 I want to do that. No, 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 no. I get to do that. Why do you get to do that? It's like, you get, you get, it's chaos. And God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. That's the principle. And I'm, wow, I'm looking at time here. Moving along quicker now. <laughs> Speeding it up. Putting it in fourth gear. Okay. Whew. Wipe the brow there. I, I, need a na- I, I need a handkerchief. I need to be like a Baptist preacher and start wiping the brow now. You know. <laughs> I don't walk around nearly enough to, to wipe the brow. That's the principle stated. Now uh, buckle up because we're going to see Paul here apply the principle and he's going to do so first to men in verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now again, remember, at the beginning we said that Paul is speaking here within the context of public corporate worship, when the church gathers for worship. And Paul here is saying that within this context, every man, every honor, every male who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now there are three ways, at least, that I can think of that uh, there are three things that need unpacking in this verse. Okay, first... What is meant by prophesying? That word is fairly self-explanatory. It means to prophesy, to be a prophet, to speak forth divine inspiration to predict. It is used to refer both to Old Testament prophets who spoke, thus saith the Lord, and to New Testament prophets. You don't see as many of them highlighted in Scripture, but there are New Testament prophets. In the book of Acts, you see this, this fellow named Agabus, um, you had Philip who had four daughters who prophesied. So there are New Testament prophets. So these New Testament prophets, along with the apostles, are foundational to the church. Right? Ephesians 2.20. The, the foundation of the church, you've got Christ the cornerstone, and the foundation are the apostles and the prophets. So they are foundational to the church. So in that sense, these are prophets who spoke forth new revelation, who revealed things from God previously unrevealed. But... 
to be a prophet could also just mean to speak from the revelation of God. Speaking forth from the Bible is, in a sense, prophetic. I'm not predicting anything. I'm just telling you, I'm speaking to you the words of God. That's what the prophet did. It's just that I'm not getting a direct feed into my brain. I'm just giving you what the pages on the Bible here say. So there are no more prophets in the sense of speaking new revelation. That, that gift is gone. We'll get into that in a moment uh, in, in future weeks. But there is the act of preaching and teaching the Word of God, which is, in a sense, prophetic. Now, second, I'm moving along faster here, so I'm sorry if I'm not pausing for dramatic effect. Second, what is meant by having his head covered? And this is crucial to the entire passage. Now, here in verse 4, the way it's phrased here, the, the phrase literally means down from the head. That's what the phrase is. It means down from the head. So it can refer to hair, which flows down from your head. And it, can, and it does mean that. We'll see that later. It also can refer to a veil or covering that you put over your head. It could be some kind of scarf or shawl that you put over your head. In some cases, uh, you had extra folds on your toga. You can take that and flip that over your head. It's just something that is on your head that flows down from your head. Now, based on English translations, many think it was a hat, something that like covered your head. I don't think so. I think it, it's probably best seen as a veil, which we'll see when we get to when it talks about the women. It's a different phrase there. But anyway, so something on your head. Third, what is meant by dishonors his head? Is it, am I dishonoring my, my actual head? If it's if, if as a male, I am praying and prophesying with it covered? Or am I dishonoring my head, Christ, when I cover my head when I pray or prophesy? And I think the latter a man in church who prays or prophesies with his head covered, however you want to understand that, is dishonoring his head, Christ. Christ is the head of the male. And when you, when you pray or prophesy with your head covered, you are dishonoring your head. And we'll, we'll see what we mean in a little bit. So again, putting this all together, whatever is meant by prophesying, whether he is speaking to God, praying, or speaking for God, prophesying, a man must do so with his literal head uncovered because it, he will dishonor his head, Christ, if he does so with it covered. A man brings dishonor to Christ if he prays or prophesies with his head covered. And because Christ is the head of every male, man, he must be honored by all men or males. Now Paul moves on to the women, verses 5 and 6. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So if it is dishonorable for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered then it is also dishonorable, shameful for a woman or wife to do so with her head uncovered. Now in these verses, we get a, full, a more full picture of what it means to have one's head covered because the, the word for uncovered in verse 5 means unveiled. Unveiled. So it's a different word in the Greek and it typically means to be unveiled. So now I think we can find, I hope, some clarity about what's going on here with head coverings and what it has to do with authority and submission. Because as it is today in some Muslim cultures, the wearing of a veil was a sign that a woman was 
married, that she is under the authority of a man, that she is under the protection of a man. So she wears a veil as a sign of her authority. Usually within the context of marriage, a woman wore a veil to announce that she is taken. She is not available. Don't look at me because I belong to another man. She is under the care of her husband. Again, the ESV, I think, gets this sense right when it translates uh, woman as wife. And I think it makes more context within uh, sense given the context of veils. So a woman who refuses to wear her veil dishonors her head. Who is the head of the woman? Her husband. If she refuses to wear the symbol of authority on her head, she dishonors her husband. That's what Paul is saying here. And she might as well have shaved her head. It's like, if you're going to do that, you might as well just shave your head. It's the same thing as if you have your head shaved. I'll get into that. <laughs> People come in here like, what are you talking about? It's like, miss a little, miss a lot. Catch it on the recording. A shaved head for a woman in those days basically meant three things, all of them bad, none of them good. If a woman had a shaved head in those days, it meant that she was either an adulteress, so that was her punishment. Her punishment for being an ad- caught in adultery was to have her head shaved, sort of like a scarlet letter. It meant that she was either she, perhaps a prostitute serving in the temples, or she was sort of like a, a, a current-day feminist in those days, a lesbian. That was kind of what the, the, the meaning of the shaved head was. So it's shameful. Paul is saying, you dishonor your head if you have it uncovered. You might as well be like an adulteress, a prostitute, or a lesbian, is what he's kind of, in a sense, saying. Now, bringing this all the way back around to the principle that he says in verse 3, the hierarchical order of authority and submission goes like this. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of men. Man is the head of his wife or a woman. Again, this is functional authority, not ontological If a man covers his head, he dishonors Christ. If a woman or wife uncovers her head, she dishonors her husband. And within the context of corporate worship especially, it's important to maintain the proper roles of authority and submission. Now another thing going on here is sort of a maintaining of the proper gender roles and distinctions. Because a covered man and an uncovered woman It's sort of like blurring the distinctions between the genders. That's why Paul says it is is, uh, shameful in verse 6 for a woman to be shorn or shaved. Now, we're going to stop here because I'm running up in time and and I'm also running at the end of my notes too. But uh, just a wrap up here. We're going to continue this next week. I do want to say a few words as far as application goes. Because we mentioned at the beginning... Are, are head coverings timeless or are they cultural? I think the principle is timeless. The practice is cultural. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for a woman to wear a veil. And you even see in some Christian circles, I remember a church we went to had a family. It was like a husband, wife, and like 10 kids. And I think they had five daughters. And all of them wore little doily things on top of their heads as a head covering because they took this literally. I think this, that's a practice that was cultural in that time. In our current culture... Think about it. I mean, our current culture already kind of, in a sense, disdains gender, you know, distinct, and we blur the gender distinctions already. It's kind of hard to, to, to identify exactly what is, how do you dress as a woman? How do you show authority and submission to your husband as a woman? 
you know, when you, you know, you've got unisex clothing and all this kind of, you know, unisex haircuts. It's kind of harder in this day and age, harder to apply. But I will say this. I don't think women need to wear head coverings. I don't think women with short hair is shameful. But we need to affirm gender distinctiveness in whatever way that makes sense in our culture. So whatever way it makes sense to... If you're a woman, you don't want to be saying, I'm a man, and I'm going to dress like a man, okay? It's, you want to maintain some way of affirming gender distinctiveness. And we need to maintain these roles in the home and the church. And I'll stop here because I am at time. But, uh, and I did so, so I wouldn't have any questions. <laughs> so save your questions for next week because I've got the other half of this passage to go 